Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. CNN Breaking News. Welcome to the show and straight to our breaking news this morning. Turkey banning Syrians, Yemenis and Iraqis from flights to Belarus as Europe threatens sanctions over the migrant crisis. Two airlines have announced the same ban. The EU says Belarus manufactured the crisis, encouraging migrants to travel to the Polish border as payback for earlier sanctions. Poland says Belarus is using migrants for, quote, propaganda, while rights groups criticize Polish pushbacks. At least 2,000 men, women and children are now trapped along the border. Poland says 223 people tried to cross illegally on Thursday. Matthew Chance is the only international reporter on the Belarusian side of the border, and he joins us now. Matthew, great to have you with us. Just talk us through what you're seeing and what the people there are saying. Just quickly redial. I lost contact with you then. Sorry. Okay, I Let's think we've just again. lost connection with him, but we can see him, and I think uh, the scenes behind him, as you can see, speak for himself. We'll just see if we can re-establish connection with him. Matthew, can you hear me? Yeah, we can see him there, of course, standing on the border, talking to people. And obviously we can see that he's talking to someone there, a gentleman with a child on his shoulders. Matthew, can you hear yeah. me now? Or are we still trying yeah. to reestablish? OK, Matthew, I, we've got you. Tell no, me what I, you're I seeing. Can, uh, it's pretty evident. I can, yeah. I, I can hear you. I can right. hear you. It's just technically a little bit challenging, as you can imagine. But there are thousands of migrants that have flooded into Belarus over the past several weeks and 2,000 of them, and there are many more elsewhere, have come to this camp uh, on the border. Uh, they set up a camp here right on the border with Poland. I was just speaking to this gentleman over here uh, and his sister, his sister's name's Noor, there's a, there's a child on his shoulders, you can see her name is, uh, is Mary, right? Mary. Mary. Yeah. Um, and they're from Iraqi Kurdistan, as are many of the people uh, that I've spoken to here. Let me just flip the camera. Uh, around because uh, I'm holding up my what's well, not a camera it's a phone. let me flip that around you can see right here quite an interesting scene is playing out because you've got Belarusian security forces trying to push the crowds back uh, as the Belarusian Red Cross attempts to hand out food aid they're just handled, handing out water but look you know there's such a scramble for sustenance among the people in this camp that as soon as anything like food or water appears, everybody whatever they can. So the security forces are out here pushing people back. And look, one guy, I mean, he's not using his baton, but he's threatening to use his baton just to try and control the unruly crowd of migrants, the desperate uh, people as they try to get you know, food and water uh, to keep them going during what are becoming increasingly cold nights here uh, on the border between uh, Belarus uh, and uh, and Poland's international. Sorry, it's the Belarusian Red C Red Cross, by the way, that's um, that's distributing the aid here. Let me just take you quickly through here. You can see the sun's just going down, so I'm sorry if that's glaring a bit. But people have made their makeshift, um, you know, camps here. 
There's lots of children here, 200 children according to the authorities, uh, 600 women, the rest of them, of the 2,000 uh, are, are young men apparently. And just over here, show how close we are. You can see someone standing right there, Polish police. You can see in the foreground here, the razor wire fence that's been erected by the Poles to try and prevent people, um, sometimes in vain, from getting across into Poland, uh, into the European Union. So, you know, a pretty tense standoff here between Belarus and Poland. And of course, both sides are blaming each other. Poland, the European Union, Western countries, the United States as well, saying this is a crisis that has been fueled by Belarus itself. It's been, they say, encouraging migrants to come to Belarus. It's been urging on the border as a means of putting pressure on the European Union and in some way sort of punishing the EU for the stinging sanctions uh, that the EU has been imposing on Belarus for its various malign activities inside the country, its oppression of opponents, for example. The Belarusians, on the other hand, backed by their allies in Moscow and in fact some other international aid agencies as well, are saying that you know, some of the blame should be shared by Poland which is not fulfilling its obligations, they say, uh, much of the time under international law. That's something that Poland rejects. But nevertheless, there are numerous reports of migrants, once they get to Polish territory, being pushed back into Belarus. And, you know, of course, that's not to say the Belarus are any saints either. They're pushing people the other way. And so the poor individuals from Iraqi Kurdistan, from various other parts of the Middle East, uh, from Afghanistan, uh, from Syria and elsewhere. And you can see, I don't know if you can get a sense of how, how deep this camp is running right across that border. They're the ones paying the real price. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right, Matthew. And actually, it's them that I want to talk about now. I mean, you were showing a scenes at the beginning of people sort of queuing but pushing towards the, the people from the Red Cross to try and get food disbursements. Do we know how often that's taking place, how hungry these people are? And then I guess my other question would be from the people that you're speaking to, what did they believe would happen when they came to Belarus and they, they came to the border? Did they believe that they were going to be let across the border into, into Poland? What are they saying at this moment? Well, I mean, I'm just going to have to change the shot a little bit because my arm is a little bit too much. But look, um, yeah, it's a, good, it's a good question. Look, firstly, on the food aid, uh, all I can say is that, that you know, they're not getting enough. I mean, the people here are, here are hungry. They're desperate for firewood. I witnessed some scenes just a few moments ago before we came to air with people scrambling to get firewood off a truck that had, that had brought some chopped logs uh, into the camp so they can light these fires to keep warm. Because even though it's um, not particularly cold right now, as the sun goes down, as the night draws in, uh, and as uh, you know, we are, in, of course, in the middle of winter here, or at the beginning of winter anyway, it's extremely cold. There's already been a number of people who have reported to have died because of hypothermia here in this camp as they attempt to get across uh, the border uh, into Poland and into the European Union. Of course, that's what they want to do. They came here with the express purpose. Now, were they encouraged by Belarus? I think there's plenty of evidence that they were. But they came here with the express purpose a better life um, in 
the European Union. Many of them have said they want to go to Germany through Poland. In fact, you see crowds of people here sometimes chanting Germany, Germany, Germany. Others people say they want to go to Britain, the normal destination countries for migrants inside, inside Europe, if not now the European Union. Um, and I think there's a bitter sense of disappointment amongst many of the people here that that is not happening as quickly as they hoped it would. And remember, this has not been a cheap, cost-free exercise for these individuals. From the migrants that I've spoken to inside Minsk and elsewhere, thousands of dollars, three, four, five thousand dollars, or whatever you want to call them, to transit right from their home countries through to their destination countries as well. And there's more because, uh, I mean, there's literally more in terms of Whoa. refugees because what the Belarusian uh, authorities tell me is that there are 2,000 people in this camp, as I mentioned, but by the end of the week, there could be as many as 1,000, perhaps as many as 10,000 in the weeks uh, and in the months ahead. And so the Belarusians are warning the European Union and warning specifically Poland that this crisis is going to get a lot worse uh, if, uh, if this standoff continues. I mean, we've heard now that a number of the airlines are not bringing refugees from some of the nations that you mentioned, and you introduced us to Mary at the beginning there, um, and Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, what do we think happens to the people there? Are they willing to wait until a solution is found? Because we also know the EU is going to meet on Monday. The foreign ministers are going to talk about potentially more sanctions on Belarus, but that doesn't address the immediate crisis that, that you're bringing to us there. Are those people prepared to wait? Well, I, I, I don't see them um, going anywhere very summer around again for the for the for the um, very soon. Um, and as I said to you, there's certainly no sign of a let up in the amount of refugees, two or three hundred people coming in every day, according to the Belarusian authorities and becoming migrants every day and trying to get uh, to this border every day so that situation is getting much worse you're right there is there are measures underway in terms of trying to curtail the amount of people that come in directly from from okay i think we've lost the signal there with matthew chance as you can see and i apologize for the connection that we had there but clearly a very troubling situation there and we will continue to track matthew and those refugees there the migrants on the border between belarus and poland and we thank you to uh, Matthew Chance there for bringing us that story. For now, let's bring it back to business news today and global stocks ending a volatile week on an up note. Green remains the theme. As you can see across Wall Street, the Dow outperforming pre-market and Johnson & Johnson announcing a surprise breakup plan to Europe. In the meantime, still on track for weekly gains and markets in Asia finished higher with the Nikkei rising more than 1%. OK, let's get to the latest on Johnson & Johnson breaking up Band-Aids and prescription drugs. The world's largest health products company is splitting into two. And Paula Monica joins us on this story. Not a new concept. We've seen rivals like Pfizer, like Merck, have done the same, separating the far less lucrative consumer part of the business from the medical devices, from the drugs part of the business. And that's the decision today from Johnson & Johnson, too. Yeah, Johnson & Johnson, obviously a very well-known company in the Dow. Whether or not the new J&J &J remains in the Dow remains to be seen. They make a COVID vaccine. That will remain part of the core J&J &J, uh, pharma and medical devices business. But yeah, as you point out, they are going to be spinning off that unit that is known for consumer products like Band-Aids and 
Sudafed and others. And this isn't just following in the lead of what some other pharma companies have done. We've had this wave of big breakups just this week, GE, which we've talked about, as well as Toshiba. So it seems like right now, companies around the world, these conglomerates might be deciding that being more nimble is the way to go in 2021 and beyond. Yeah, I was looking at the breakdown of sales here. Um, the drugs unit, 55% of sales in 2020. The medical devices, 28% of sales. That consumer business, just 17%. So if you want to focus your attention and your investments on the more lucrative side of the business, this is the way you go. Paula and Monica, thank you so much for that. Fossil fuels focus on the final day of the COP26. A latest draft agreement retains a reference to fossil fuels, but the language has been weakened. Here's the exact line. The draft calls on countries to accelerate, quote, the phase out of unabated coal power and of inefficient subsidies for fossil fuels. Phil Black is at the summit in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, Phil, details like that, you could drive a bus through and a diesel or a petrol fueled bus at that. What do we make of it? Well, Julia, you have to remember this is a consensus process. We've got some 200 countries closely scrutinising this text, intensely trying to get language that they believe, perceive, uh, reflects their national interest. Here's an example of this. So, for example, the, uh, the text still does include some pretty strong, clear language uh, about the science, about why the goal should be 1.5 degrees Celsius of average temperature warming, why there's a limited time to achieve that, because we've got to cut emissions by 45% this decade in order to get there. But when it comes to who should take that action, um, this is where we've seen a change. The original text talked about all parties taking meaningful action in this critical decade. The new version talks about an accelerated uh, action, but with reference to countries' specific circumstances, capacities, uh, sustainable development, uh, and efforts to eradicate poverty. So what you see there is the developing world essentially saying, not very subtly, and as we would expect, that they do not believe they can be expected to take the same action as richer developed countries. So India and China cannot be held in the same way responsible, cannot be expected to act this decade in the same way as, say, the US and the EU would. Crucially, there is still language there which points to a next step, because remember, Remember, we've got to cut emissions 45% this decade to get to 1.5 degrees, and we are nowhere near achieving that. So perhaps the most important language in this is the language that calls for parties to go away, reconsider their individual emissions targets, and come back next year with stronger ones. The language there has changed slightly from urging parties to requesting parties. That is seen as slightly weaker language. And on the coal and fossil fuel stuff, well, yes, again, more qualification. Instead of simply calling for an accelerator, uh, move away from coal and end to fossil fuel subsidies. It calls for an accelerated move away from unabated coal, that is, coal power without the controversial carbon capture technology attached, uh, and a move away from uh, inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. Inefficient is highly subjective and open to some interpretation there. So we've got these key points. They're still there. This is only the second draft. We would expect it to change still on this final day. Julia. Yeah, I was thinking to you this week, I believe, the IMF data says $11 million a minute spent on fossil fuel subsidies. We have to do better. Phil Black, thank you so much for that. COP26 in Glasgow. Now, European airlines pushing for more ambitious targets to decarbonise the industry globally. They're calling on the UN aviation body to match what European character, 
carriers have already pledged, namely net zero emissions by 2050. One of them, EasyJet, is hoping to go further. It's working on an interim target to significantly reduce emissions by 2035. And Johan Lundgren is the CEO of EasyJet and chairman for the Airlines for Europe Association. And he joins us from COP26. So fantastic to have you on the show. For me, this is, what, two-thirds of the European aviation sector basically challenging the rest of the world to meet in the middle over reducing emissions. What does it mean in practice and what are you hoping for? Well, basically, what, 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 what this is all about is that uh, the uh, A4E and its members here that I'm, I'm chairman of this year set out a really groundbreaking roadmap here in, in February where we said we believe now that we we can get to a net zero position by 2050. And we showed that through the roadmap that was developed by independent research from Dutch-based experts. And we we believe that that can also work as a blueprint for others to follow. But I think it's worthwhile pointing out uh, in, in your intro that to say that, look, there's been a tremendous also, you know, development among the, you know, people in this industry in terms of the commitment that they're making. Only a couple of years ago in 2019, four years after the, the Paris summit, there was no airline committed to net zero. Now you have some 300 airlines in the world, which represent that 80% of the all the flights that have been operating. So now, while we have done that and committed to do that, now the work needs to then really get on to in granularity. How do we make these things that we have laid out happen? And that can only happen if government authorities and the industry are all coming together. And one example would be, for instance, to have a common policy framework on carbon pricing as an example. And this demands global solutions, but we don't use that as an excuse to not get going on the on the work that we have done here in, in Europe. There's a number of elements that we can we can look at here, but I do want to be specific first and foremost. I mean, you're an airline that's saying, look, we're going to do this by 2035. And, you know, I've looked at all the things that you're doing in order to address this. Just some of them are quite simple. No longer using paper documents on board, um, making sure you fill each flight so that you're efficient, um, switching to electric ground equipment, including steps and, and bag trolleys. Some of these are basic steps just to tackle the amount of energy that you're using and to just on a very simple level, look at reducing your carbon footprint. It feels like 2050, actually, for some parts of the world, the United States, for example, isn't ambitious enough, and we're not even there yet. Well, I, I think, uh, first of all, it's good to see that the, the US airlines are now following up with the announcement that was made here at COP26 here early in the week to reach net zero by 2050. But basically, the, the big buckets to reach net zero by 2050 consists of, of, of really four things. One is the development and the implementation of really zero emissions technology. And if you're looking through the, the development now when it comes to hydrogen and then also yeah. electric, particularly for petrol, it is extraordinarily promising. The second part is sustainable aviation fuels, and particularly e-fuels in, in the long run. But this is where we need a lot of government support to make sure there are incentives to incentivize, which is going to be a huge industry going forward, to make sure that the sustainable aviation fuel is available in that supply that is so needed. And also, you know, that the cost of doing that doesn't prohibit early adopters to, to use that. And then you have the third part, which is the economic measures like what we have here in Europe, the, the ETS, and then also Corsia, which is a global offsetting scheme. And we all need these things to come together. And I think that's the most important thing to say that, look, how can we now implement this on a global level that, that we're going to see the impact on this? And that's what the roadmap that we set out here in, in, in Europe has been so important and we're pretty proud of. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the game changers here, I think, would be greener fuels. And you've alluded to it, too. But surely that's somewhere where governments have to coordinate in terms of how they promote and influence the adoption and the research into this. If you've got a, a jurisdiction that gets the carrot, which is tax incentives and, and tax breaks, and then others get the stick, which is like a mandate on on these kind of fuels, which I know Europe's looking at, then surely you're going to end up with ticket price distortions and people are going to pick and choose. I mean, you have to try and be competitive with this at the same time as promoting greater reduction of, of carbon footprints. I agree. I mean, you're, you're spot on. I mean, it, it, it is, look, it, I think it's pretty proven that one of the, 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 the least effective ways on how you're going to try to address how you can decarbonize aviation is through taxation. Because you're basically removing funds out of the industry you're making the flight more expensive, which basically means, in essence, that you're going to have, you know, privileged and wealthy people that's going to be flying. And, you know, the deregulation of the industry that made sure that that there were the millions and millions of people who can take uses of the product and service that would be impacted. It doesn't necessarily mean there will be less flights. There will be less load factors, less people on the plane who will pay more. And at the same time, you remove the industry. And at the same time, the amount of taxes that has been called sustainability taxes or green taxes, whatever you call it, where it not has been ring-fenced that they actually go into initiatives that helps us decarbonize and support the transition. It is absolutely just a, a, a flawed aspect on the whole thing. And, I, and I, I would also argue that, you know, we are not under tax from that perspective. Taxation is a tool. It is a design that is there, but it has to be done and, and, and shaped in a much smarter and effective way than it is today. I'm glad we're having the discussion. Uh, great to have you on the show with us and hopefully we'll talk to you again soon as well. And we'll talk about the recovery of the industry for now. So thank you so much, the CEO of EasyJet there and the chairman of Airlines for Europe. Thank you. Still to come on First Move, a Thanksgiving price hike, the legendary Stu Leonard Jr. on soaring food prices and festive treats and a Friday trip to Havana. Cuba reopens next week after vaccinating its people with a homegrown vaccine. We're live in the capital. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move with a look at some of the stories making headlines around the world. Parts of Germany and Austria are expected to impose new restrictions on those who are not vaccinated for COVID-19. From Monday, Berlin will ban unvaccinated people from many indoor facilities. And in Upper Austria, officials plan to lock down those who aren't vaccinated. Both countries reported record infection numbers on Thursday. CNN Scott McLean joins us now with more. Wow, Scott, I think one of the first questions that comes to mind on this is enforcement. How are they planning to enforce these greater restrictions, particularly if we're talking about lockdowns for, for unvaccinated people? And why? Why do this? Yeah, two questions that are certainly tough to answer. And these are the questions the governments are grappling with really all over Europe. And who would have thought that a year later, almost a year after the first shots went into arms in Europe, we would still be talking about lockdowns. Mass vaccination was supposed to be the silver bullet that made lockdowns obsolete. But increasingly, governments are saying, Julia, that, look, not enough of the population is actually vaccinated to make enough of a difference to prevent the virus from spreading quickly. And so Austria um, definitely falls into that category. Um, you mentioned the possibility of lockdown. So Austria actually signed off on a law back in September or a policy back in December that said that once 30 percent of ICU beds are occupied by COVID patients, that will trigger a lockdown, but only amongst unvaccinated people. 
You asked about enforcement. They're promising to enforce it by police, just like it was at the height of the pandemic, where you were only allowed to leave your house to go to work or for the absolute essentials. Austria, uh, I should mention, by the way, Julia, right now that number stands at 21 percent. So the Austrian chancellor is saying this lockdown could happen within days. The Austrian chancellor also saying that the vaccination rate in his country is shamefully low. The infection rate is also quite high, three times higher than it is in Germany right now. Um, Other countries are making similar calculations. Uh, Not too far away in the Netherlands, they may go ahead with another uh, lockdown, a similar or a a different, a slightly different one where the the whole country would be barred from going to restaurants, bars, gyms, that kind of a thing temporarily in order to get the infection rate down, which is surging right now. That's the recommendation that's been given by an extra expert panel. Though the government uh, plans to make their announcement on what they will do later on today. And Germany also uh, tightening restrictions. State governments in Berlin, for instance, saying as of Monday, you will no longer be able to get into restaurants, bars, gyms, that kind of a thing, um, with just proof of a negative test. You have to prove that you have antibodies. And Julia, this is really significant because uh, Germany, since the outset of the pandemic, has always made a point of saying, look, we're not trying to discriminate against people who don't get vaccinated. So they've always had that testing option. But now it seems that as cases are rising, they're sort of running out of options as to what they can do. Officials today said that of the almost 50,000 people who were confirmed to have test positive in new cases today, well, 350 of those are going to end up in the ICU and 200 of them are going to likely die, they say. Yeah, I mean, this is quite fascinating, isn't it? For me in New York, it makes sense simply because that's what we've experienced the whole way through now. If you're not vaccinated, you're not allowed indoor many places. Um, It was the health minister for Germany, Jens Spahn, that caught my attention, though. He made some comments about the situation in Germany relative to Italy. He said, if my vaccination certificate is checked more often in one day in Rome than it is sometimes in four weeks in Germany, then I think more can be done. Um, very quickly, because Italy has some of the tightest restrictions on people who aren't vaccinated. What's the situation like in Italy at this moment? Yeah, so they have a green pass very similar to the one in Germany. And obviously, according to the German health minister, enforced much more strictly as well. You have to show that you have proof of vaccination, a proof of natural immunity from having been infected previously, or you have to prove that you had a recent negative test. And that seems to be working for Italy right now. Its infection rate is right down with Portugal's right now, whose vaccination rate is well into the 80s. Um, obviously, Italy right now might be getting lucky with the policies that it has in place. But maybe as those policies loosen up in the in the coming months, uh, they may start to have a problem if they can't boost their vaccination rate. So obviously, Italian authorities are hoping that they can get more shots into more arms as we get into the winter months so that their pretty good situation right now stays that way, Julia. Yeah, and they've had protests as a result, but it'll be fascinating to watch the data. CNN's Scott McLean, thank you for that update there. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. As expected, we've got a higher open across the board on Wall Street, but the major U.S. averages remain on track, actually, for weekly losses. Stocks have had a pretty volatile week with rising concern over how the U.S. Federal Reserve might respond to the ongoing spike in inflation. U.S. consumer inflation now at more than 30-year highs with red-hot food prices leading the way. The price of steak up 24% from this time last year. Bacon and pork chops not far behind. Milk, coffee and flour also up 
some 6% from a year ago. Rising food prices, something our friend grocery guru Stu Leonard Jr. knows all about. And the president and CEO of Stu Leonard's is joining us now from one of his stores in Connecticut. Stu, it is always a pleasure to have you on the show. I know you were listening to that. Do those kind of numbers resonate with what you're seeing there? No, they don't. And and, and ah. I'm, I'm a little confused listening to some of these statistics. Um, we're getting over 100 trailer loads uh, of product every week in this store. I'm talking to the ranchers, the farmers, the, the meat people. And right now, at least at Stu Leonard's, we're getting plenty of supply. You are seeing prices go up a little bit. But you know, I just heard, for instance, like I got, got a few props for you today, Julia. But even Brussels sprouts, I heard were going to double in price. They haven't gone up in price. Um, so it might be spotty across the country, but on the East Coast here around uh, Manhattan, uh, we're seeing things increase a little bit. You're going to see 5 to 10%, but nothing up in the, the 20 to 30% like I've heard on the news. So this is so strange. What's going on? Because I think one of the things that people talk about most is the meat prices that are rising. I can see not meat, poultry, but I can see a very nice looking turkey there in front of you. What are you seeing in terms of price rises for for meats and for poultry as well? Okay, well, well, most of the, the meat and poultry is based on a lot of grain and a lot of feed. I mean, if you look at this turkey, you know, 75 percent of a turkey's weight is feed. So corn prices have gone up. Obviously, that is going to increase the price of turkeys this year. Not that much. We've actually even lowered the price of one of them because we were able to buy local. So I would recommend to, to people try to go local. Like these squash right here, same price as last year. We're buying them from New Jersey. So you don't have those transportation costs if you shop at a store that buys local product. Oh, this is such a great point. So. I mean, we've discussed this with you many times, the fact that you source from local farms. You have these conversations with people about what's available, how their prices are rising. How are they doing, and you actually, for that matter, with labour, with paying people more to have to recruit them? And also with energy prices going up too, the transportation costs are a critical element here of of how you have to adjust prices. Well, basically now, uh, Julie, I hear four things from all of our suppliers, and I'm We've been working really hard on this, too, to try to get everybody the best products at the best price for the holidays now. But you hear supply chain disruption, our our suppliers talk about. The second big issue, I can't get enough help. I don't have enough labor, and and the labor that I do have, I've had to pay them more. Uh, The third thing is the transportation costs. I mean, we all go to the fuel uh, uh, and see what the fuel costs are right now. Well, the farmers have to put fuel in their tractors, and and, uh, then they got to transport the product. Uh, Sometimes our our fresh berries come from California right now. So the cost is doubled to get the berries here to the store. You're going to see some increases, but I hear that from all suppliers all the time, those uh, issues. So we're not talking about the kind of monster price rises that I was talking about, though, at the beginning of the show, at least as far as you're concerned. Well, you know what, Julie, I think you have to shop smartly. And don't forget, Thanksgiving is the most inexpensive holiday meal of the year. You know, uh, I mean, if we're paying three, four dollars a gallon for gas right now, um, that might be the, the same uh, level as, say, buying your rib roast or something at, at the holidays coming up. But for Thanksgiving, it's like you're being able to buy gas at two dollars a gallon. 
I mean, turkey prices are all in the $2 range right now. If you want to go with something like this, a big uh, tomahawk steak, you're going to start paying a lot more. This is now like almost $20 a pound for the best cut of, of beef. And same with lobsters right now. These have doubled in price. So stay away from those things, you know, and, and just stick to things like ground beef hasn't gone up much. Chicken hasn't gone up much. You just have to bob and weave and adjust and look for the specials out there. And I think it can circumvent a lot of these, you know, scary, scary uh, uh, prices that that uh, people are hearing about on the news. Yeah, I had the U.S. Agriculture Secretary on actually last week as well, and I asked him about the risk of turkey shortages because I'd I'd read that headline as well. Again, you're saying don't worry about that, but probably buy sort of a little bit earlier than you would have done last year, perhaps. Well, you know, Julie, also don't forget, you have to make a decision how many turkeys to raise on January 1st. (laughs) So you're really throwing a dart. I mean, to order our turkeys, you know, probably in July and, and so forth. So. So when I talk to our turkey farmers right now, some of them have have cut back on the number of turkeys they're they're growing. Like a big uh, company is Shady Brook and Cargill. There, they've cut our turkey order back thirty percent because they didn't raise enough turkey. So it's really a supply and demand thing. But then we have a local farmer in New Jersey right now who's who grows all their own corn right on their their property, their ranch, and um, they've been able actually to. They grew they, extra turkey. So we ordered actually, a thou- we'll sell 70,000 turkeys. And we're expecting it, it that, that uh, we're going to do more from the local farmer in Pennsylvania right now. Yeah, I mean, I love the way that you switch these things up as well. And you're, uh, you're anticipating or at least planning ahead in order to have everything in place. Um, how many people have you hired? I'm throwing darts. Oh, go on. <laughs> I'm throwing darts right now. Because we don't know what's going to happen this Thanksgiving. We are seeing, though, that customers can go online and order their turkey uh, early. And we're seeing that's gone up 400% right. And also, we have a dinner for four and a dinner for eight. Last year, the dinner for fours exploded, obviously, because you know everybody had smaller gatherings. This year, we've noticed dinner for eights are back on track again, like 2019 them. So we're feeling right now, our customers that are shopping here at Stu's, they're planning on bigger Thanksgivings this year. And that's what we're betting on, too. And that gives me goosebumps. People are getting back together, which is great. Now, I was going to ask you about how many people you've yeah, had for, uh, yeah. for the holiday season. But is that an upside down cow behind you over your, your right shoulder? <laughs> yeah. Actually, I got to <laughs> thank Disney. I got to thank Disney because I went down there and... And I said, how do you come up with these ideas? I spoke to their head of all their creative uh, uh, down there. Um, And so one of the things he said to me is he said, gravity doesn't matter when you're at Disney. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, like, break the rules and (laughs) think think of new ideas. So I said, well, that's cool. So I came back and I said, "Ah, let's put a cow upside down. And we have it in all our training rooms and everything. We want everybody to think creatively as we can right now. But... That, that, that cow's from Disney, right? There. I tell you what, if gravity, if gravity does apply to that, you need some great insurance because that would take somebody down. And actually speaking, no. speaking of that, the last time we spoke to you, you had a sling on your arm. How's your arm? Are you yeah. all fixed and mended? Oh, it's better, yeah. Okay. You know good. what, I'm getting older and, and I'm getting injured, but I'm all, all, all set right now. <laughs> you um, have to hold the crowds back anymore. I, yeah, I'm my, my well. daughters are telling me to, 
take it easy, Dad. You can't be climbing on things like you used to. <laughs> <laughs> no chance. No chance of you yeah. slowing down. Stu, great to, great to have you with us. Stu Leonard Jr. Thank you, Julian. Happy great Thanksgiving, chat. everybody. To you too, sir. Happy the president and CEO of Stu Leonard, sir. Thank you. Okay, up next. Restoring the land is a matter of survival. It's up to us to create an African dream. Africa's great new war project on a brand new project, Bleeding Art, Blending Art and Activism. That's up next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. It's the final day of COP26 and as negotiators scramble to forge a big agreement, activists are ramping up their efforts too. Among them is Code Green, a new coalition of artists and coders. Their plan is to use NFT, so non-fungible token auctions, to raise money for climate projects. They're planning to host the first auction at the World Economic Forum in Davos. And joining us now is Marlene, French singer-songwriter in Emoja. She's co-founder of Code Green and a climate activist with many strings to her bow. She's the narrator on a documentary about Africa's Great Green Wall project, which aims to grow an 8,000-kilometer ribbon of trees across the continent to restore the ecosystem. She's also a UN ambassador on desertification. And it's amazing to have you on the show. Welcome, welcome. Um, Talk to me about the showing of this documentary, because I know it was held at the IMAX cinema in, in Glasgow. What was the reaction Hello, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. The reaction was incredible. And uh, more and more people are learning more about the Great Green Wall and uh, the impact, the positive impact that it can have on the whole world when it will be achieved. And we have a lot of young people. And for me, it is so important to include the youth. And we even have kids that came with their families to watch the film. And uh, it is very encouraging. Yeah, it is. And it's great to have kids coming to see this and understanding some of the challenges, but also some of the benefits, I think, as well. Um, You travelled to five different countries in order to talk and understand about the impact of deforestation. Um, Senegal, Mali, Nigeria, just to name some of them. Um, Just help us understand what you saw, the challenges, but also the positive impact that this kind of approach and planting trees and rebuilding ecosystems can have. The reality of climate change is reading really hard in this region of the Sahel. And the Great Green Wall is from Senegal to Djibouti. And what I saw traveling in the Sahel was that a lot of people have built a strong resilience, but their lives are so difficult. And all the issues around climate change, I could really see witness uh, the impact that it has on the communities, forced migration, education, the life of you know, the the big poverty and uh, uh, the fact that in this region, 80% of rural communities live on some form or another of agriculture. If they cannot live and and make a living where they are, millions of people are are going to be forced to migrate. And uh, just an example, the Lake Chad Basin is uh, around four countries, uh, Niger, Nigeria, Cameroon, and Chad. And in the past 50 years, it has shrinked 90%. So all of the communities around have become very vulnerable. And uh, it gave an opportunity to armed groups like 
Boko Haram to really terrorize people and uh, take over that region. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of challenges here, to your point. I know you also care about empowering women, which is a crucial part of this. And we recently spoke to to Matt Damon of Water.org, and he was saying the millions of hours on a daily basis that women and children spend just walking to get water, even giving them their time back and empowering the women in some of these communities, helping educate the women in these communities, has such a huge positive impact on everyone. Absolutely. It is going to be a huge change maker because the Great Green Wall is not just about planting trees. It's really giving opportunity, job opportunities to the yeah. community. And knowing that in the Sahel, 50% of the people are less than 25 years, it is going to be a huge, huge, huge change for this. It's a double-edged sword, but uh, we are uh, in, in this rush to make it happen so that we can harness really the, the power of these young people and give them, not just to make, uh, help them survive, but make them thrive. And for me, women are the backbone of this project. Traveling in the desert and in the Sahara, what I saw is that women are really leaders in this project. Yeah. And in many projects around the world, we'll say cheekily. Um, you're also an artist and very much tied to this is what I mentioned in the introduction, um, Code Green the production of art, hopefully going to be auctioned in Davos in, in 2022. What can you tell me about this project and the kind of art that we're going to be seeing when it's produced and, and presented? Well, for me, the blockchain uh, is is the future. And uh, we're all at some point going to be on the blockchain. And the NFT community has been doing amazing stuff. But the idea is really to make it more sustainable and uh, so with Code Green, we help the NFT community to have a positive impact on the planet. So we connect donors, collectors, artists, NFT projects to a verified consortium of climate solutions on the ground and really connecting the artists to the people. Because for me, climate projects are really, really important. But what is the most important thing is the people who are living on the front line of climate change, the uh, community-based project and the grassroots project and the activists that are really making a change. So help tell their stories and help support them to make a real movement of the work that they are doing. And um, the Great Green Wall is a project that uh, is created by Africans, but not just for Africa, because in the end, when the uh, the Great Green Wall will be achieved, it will benefit the whole world because we would have built uh, millions of hectares of forest. So yeah. Code Green is really harnessing the power of creativity and help uh, find solutions for the planet and help really communities. Yeah, and another giant carbon sink for the world as well, which, as you point out, beyond anything else, helps everybody, not just the continent of Africa. Um, I can't wait to see the art. Thank you for what you're doing. I'm glad it went down well in uh, Glasgow and to uh, continue the fight. And we'll speak soon in Emoja there, the singer, songwriter Thank and co-founder so of Co Green. Great to chat to you. Thank you. OK, up next, Cuba has been off limits to tourists since the pandemic began until now. The country reopens next week. We're going to go live to the capital next.
Welcome back to First Move. Next week, Cuba reopens to tourists for the first time since the pandemic began. The country desperately needs tourism. The sector generated 10% of the country's GDP back in 2019. Most of its population has now been vaccinated with a homegrown vaccine. Patrick Gottman joins me now. Patrick, uh, what can prospective tourists expect to find when they journey to Cuba? And talk to us more about the homegrown vaccine. Absolutely, Julia. That has really been uh, key to Cuba being able to reopen. Officials say they will be able to reopen safely. More than 70% of their population are now fully vaccinated with these homegrown vaccines, vaccines that Cuban scientists uh, uh, invented uh, themselves. They have a, a long history of, of creating their own vaccines here. And we have seen the numbers uh, of deaths and cases drop sharply as vaccinations have risen. Tourism is so important here, not just for the government, but for the millions of Cubans uh, who rent their homes, uh, drive people in old cars or tour guides. And there has been almost no tourism uh, throughout the pandemic. Uh, this island just had to shut down, and that has been very, very hard. Uh, the economy is basically on life support. But starting on Monday, uh, people will be able to come here. Uh, there will be more flights uh, from abroad. Uh, if you were vaccinated, fully vaccinated, or have had a PCR test in the last 72 hours, you will not need to quarantine, which is what people, uh, visitors, had to do up until now. So that will be a big difference. And Cuba briefly last year tried to open to tourism and we saw cases spike. Uh, so that was something that they were not able to continue. But now that they have carried out these vaccinations, even uh, in children as young as two years old, Cuban officials say they are confident it is safe to move forward. Things will look a little bit different. People will have to wear face masks in the street. But all the same, uh, the Cuban government says that they feel that now is the time to reopen and, and frankly, it can't come a moment too soon. They need to. Yeah, quite rightly pointed out. Patrick, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. OK, and finally, on the first move, Iceland is known the world over for its volcanoes, its northern lights, and of course, for Bjork. And now, for a cold as ice swipe at the Mark Zuckerberg metaverse. Iceland saying, why put a headset on when you can experience the wonders of Icelandic nature firsthand? And what do we call this not-so-new chapter in human connectivity? the Iceland worse. Enhanced actual reality without silly looking headsets. Completely immersed. As you might have guessed, that's a Mark Zuckerberg lookalike in the video. It's actually more dynamic though, I have to say. The ad campaign already getting lots of attention online. Tens of thousands of people viewing it. Some calling the campaign, quote, Olympic level trolling. One commentator saying, now I want to move to Iceland. I think that's a play on that. Um, suntan lotion, if you remember, that he was wearing as well that time. Wow, cheeky. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the World is up next, and we'll see you on Monday. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 